And it wasn't that I was just fat physically. I was fat emotionally. I was fat mentally. I was fat spiritually. I had all this extra weight in my mind, had all this extra baggage on my heart that I needed to lose. And it started in jail. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Radically Loved. I am joined by a very special guest that you've already heard his voice. He is uh, an award-winning personal trainer, author, speaker, and business owner. He has got tons of accolades, and his number one accolade, in my opinion, is his ability to transform his life. We have... Uh, so many things in common, and Doug, um, Doug Bobst. Bobs, but it's all right, you know. Why? Why is that? Do people fuck this up for you? You know, it's interesting. This could be a good starting point. Yeah. Is you just fucking it, said it, you know? Yeah, we just did this like twenty minute sound check, but uh, yeah, so high tech. Let's well, talk about this. So it's growing important. up, growing. So my name is my last name is Bobst, but we talk about transformation. And growing up when I had no confidence, no self-esteem, and no self-worth, my name got pronounced Bobst all through like school. And mm-hmm. because I didn't have the confidence or mm-hmm. self-worth to stand up for myself and say, hey, it's that's not how you pronounce my last name, I kind of adapted to that and was essentially, uh, I essentially ex- accepted being called the wrong last name. <laughs> for a good bit of my life growing up. And it wasn't until I gained some self-confidence, improved my self-esteem, felt better about myself that I was like, you know, my last name isn't actually Bops. I know I may have said that for years. It's Bops. And people people who had known me for years were like, wait, what? And I'm like, yes. So I just can't emphasize enough to your listeners, to people who may be watching this, however they're consuming it, to to just stand up for yourself, no matter what yeah. you believe in. Like, I don't care. Wh- I don't care what side of the fence you are on with different things, like whatever you believe in, just believe in something and make sure it's congruent with who you are as a person. Yeah, I love that. And look, I can relate. A lot of people butcher my first and last name because my real, not my real name. I mean, my legal name is not Rosie. It's Rocio. And good luck trying to get people to say that right. Um, Cause it's spelled R O C I O. And my last name, people say Acosta, and it's actually Acosta. And so for me, most of the time people are like, oh, Rosie Acosta. And it's like, okay, whatever. I'm just like, it's not a big deal. I don't care. And most of the time I actually, you know, like if you want to know how to pronounce it, uh, I will happy to share. But um, yeah, no, I like that. And, And I think that part of the insecurity as a child when you're being called the wrong name 
can really affect all the other areas of your life because you just continue to diminish your needs or your desires, right? And I think if you you just take the, the simplest thing and making sure your last name is pronounced right and being okay with that, like most people, if you correct them on the way your last name is pronounced, they would never really judge you because they're like, oh, it's just the way your last name is pronounced. So if you can't even get that down to where you're like, you know what? My last name is actually pronounced this. Like that's your identity. You're, the name is so special. You're only given, mm -hmm. you know, one name when you're born. And obviously when you get married and you get a partner, things can change. But if you end up um, for a, a good bit of your life saying that your name is pronounced a different way than it really is, think about what other ways you'll sacrifice your own identity if you can't even stay true to that part. And I'm not saying that people don't make mistakes with that because sure they do. And I'm, I'm sure maybe sometimes it's like not worth the trouble, but it becomes a pattern because then yeah. it starts to, you start to repeat those patterns and it's like, well, what else are you going to start negotiating with that people are getting wrong about you? What else are you going to start negotiating with, with your own identity and how you truly feel? And mm. then sure enough, you make these choices that, that add up over time and you look back and you're like, wow, how did I end up becoming this completely different version of myself that I'm not even happy with from where I was, you know, back when this all started and a lot of times it comes from not standing up for yourself. And the first thing could be as simple as your, as your name. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. What a great segue. Yeah. I mean, so much of your transformative process has been your ability to get grounded within yourself, within mm -hmm. your own identity and who you are, who you truly are, not what your environmental circumstances were, but who you are at as a person. So just to give the listeners a little bit of background, why don't you tell us, tell us where you're from, Doug? So I'm, I'm born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, grew up in the sub suburbs of Maryland. I don't know if people who are listening to this, I always, I always say like if, if people have seen the wire, like that's kind of where that's I'm from. Best. Exactly. You know, it was filmed very close to where I live and and it's interesting today, like I host a show called the adversity advantage, which hopefully one day, Rosie, you'll come on. Um, I'm a trainer, been a trainer for over 10 years. Um, I I've written multiple books. I speak, but you know, what's really insane about all of this is growing up. I use adversity to my complete disadvantage. And because of that, um, I ended up incarcerated on felony drug charges. And it, it's something that I never imagined would happen. But we t I talk about stacking these bad choices. Like I was saying before, it starts with not pronouncing your name right. And where that goes, like what else are you not going to stand up for when it comes to yourself? And that's what happened with me, right? And you can just cut me off if you want to interject or have any no, questions. No, please but... tell us. We love this. We love <laughs> okay. story time. So um, as I look back at, at how I ended up incarcerated, it was me just mismanaging pain mismanaging stress, mismanaging my own um, identity, like as far as like who, what I stood up for, for myself, what I believed in, that my values, um, trauma. And I, I turned to drugs and, and initially like the, the insecurities and everything that I was dealing with just came from my parents' divorce. They got divorced when I was five. And, and back when my parents got divorced, this is the early 90s, people weren't getting divorced like they are today. The divorce right now, I, I mean, I think it's around 50%, but back then I was the only kid in my friend group 
whose parents got divorced. So then there, I started to develop this what's wrong with me mentality. Mm. So that happens. And then I love sports still to this day, love sports, love to play sports, love watching sports. I loved back then collecting baseball cards, football cards, watching sports center, but I was as unathletic as they came. And because of that, I was cut from the sports teams. I was cut from travel teams. I was the kid who was picked last. I was just not talented in rec sports. So again, the what's wrong with me mentality started to add in. And then I had what attributed to that? Like, was it, were you like, you know, just why weren't you athletic? Like, was it something that you just weren't into moving your body when you were young? Like, well, how did that happen? I don't know. I, I, I started to, I started to gain weight when I was young. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at like what I first used to numb the pain was food and I would eat, you know, unhealthy breakfasts. I would eat pasta all the time, pizza, fast food. And And that was also what some of my friends were doing. So it really felt a little normal. What the problem was, I probably ate a little bit more than they did. And my genetics were terrible. That's as I look back, that's what I blamed. I blamed my my genetics on my, uh, my athletic ability because Mm. I was active. I still liked getting outside and playing with my friends. I still like going out and playing basketball. I just sucked. And as a kid, as a man, especially like when you you feel like your identity at times is wrapped up in your athletic ability and you're the kid who's always picked last and then you're not having any luck with girls, you're starting to question yourself. You're starting to say like, is there something wrong with me? Like, is this the way it's going to be forever? Am I going to have to be this version of me for the rest of my life? And then you you, you start stacking these limiting beliefs. So you start stacking these you know, these negative mentalities inside your head and it creates this massive balloon of anxiety, this massive mm-hmm. balloon of fear and, and worry that you're like, I need to pop this balloon and numb this pain as fast as I freaking can. And that's what, where drugs came in. And when I was 14, um, one of my neighbors offered me a, a hit off a marijuana pipe. Now keep in mind, I never thought in a million years that when I started smoking pot, eventually it would lead me going to jail. Nobody does. If people knew that that um, once they started doing any form of drug that they're going to end up incarcerated, people wouldn't do drugs, right? The risk. I mean, would... that's the hope that people. I mean, right. look, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if there was like a guarantee, like if there was a guarantee, there's always like a chance you will, or a chance that you won't. But if, they, if there was like A plus B, like Doug or Rosie, if if you do drugs, you're automatically going to jail. I would hope that I would say no. Like if I knew that as soon as I took right. a hit, Doug, you're going to jail immediately. Like I would hope I would say no and I would figure something else out. And when I took that first hit off the marijuana pipe, I felt that balloon pop, that balloon of anxiety, that balloon Mm. of fear, that balloon of worry. I'd have to worry if I was ever going to find love. I'd have to worry if I was ever going to be athletic and I have to worry what my life was going to look like because I just felt at peace with myself for the first time in my life. And then as a result, and if you're listening to this and if you've ever struggled with addiction, you know exactly where this story goes. I had to keep, I had to keep chasing that same numbing feeling. Right. It wasn't the taste of pot. It was the way it made me feel. So one hit leads to two, leads to three. And then you're smoking every day. And then you're like, gosh, I'm like, you know, 14, 15 years old. I can't, I can't afford to, to buy, you know, 
pot every day. How am I going to make some money? So I, you sell a little bit on the side to support your habit. And then, and that starts stacking up. And then sure mm-hmm. enough, by the time I'm 16 years old, I have even more damaged relationships with yeah, with how my family. This, how is this affecting your ecosystem of your friends? Like were all your friends doing the same thing? Like, did you know that what you were doing was negatively affecting you? Were you having issues with your parents? Like, did, you know, how, how is this affecting your relationships? I mean, all the above, Rosie. And it's interesting how we started this conversation of talking about identity and the name, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but because I never, and I don't, I, I don't know if a lot of kids ever really do this, but just speaking from experience now, like, because I didn't establish like who I really was and I didn't stand up for myself. I was just looking to, to fit in. I always say to people, if you don't establish your identity for yourself, you will end up using other people to create your own, your, create that identity for you. Right. Yeah. And I was just trying to fit in. I, I thought it was cool to, to, to party. I thought it was cool to smoke pot. I thought it was cool to just hang out with a certain crowd. And so I did whatever I needed to, to do that. And with that said, Sure, it created tense, tenseness in the home. My dad and I, you know, our relationship's better today than what it was when we grew up, but we never saw eye to eye. So there was already tension there. My mom, you know, struggled a lot, you know, with a divorce and, you know, sh- other things that she went through, other health issues that she had and that, that, um, that led her to obviously take it, um, pretty seriously of, of mm-hmm. take, take it's pretty seriously, like my struggles and how I was acting and that sort of thing. And, and when on my 16th birthday, she, she kicked me out of her house and, and sent me to live with my dad full time, which to at that, in that moment was, was a huge slap in the face to me right? because I needed her in that situation. Like I was really struggling. I was really anxious. I was unsure of what I was going to do when I was growing up. I felt horrible about myself, like all the choices that I had made. And I had this hole inside of me that just, just felt like it needed to be filled with love. And it was like a few months before that I ended up having a party when, um, when she was in the hospital, again, I was trying to fit in. So when all of my friends' parents would go out of town, they would have parties. It's just what we did in school. I guess what kids did but my parents never left town. So the moment my mom left the house, I thought it'd be a good idea. Like, Oh, I'm going to sneak in and just throw a party while she's in the hospital. Oh, you were already living with your dad. No, I was living with my mom, but I told her that I was staying somewhere else. Okay. But then I left a window open. I got in the house, had the party. And so that obviously um, was like a, an X, you know, next to my name or whatever, as far as like a, a strike. And then I got busted with a little bit of pot on my 16th birthday. And I, I think she just didn't really know what to do with me. I, I think mm-hmm. she had just was stressed out enough with everything she had going on that she was just like, dude, like, hopefully this will help save you. But in reality, it created more trauma, more pain, more insecurity. You know, as a, you, you know, people talk about like abandonment issues now and, you know, nobody, I didn't know what that was, but I look back and it was just like the perfect storm for abandonment. Yeah. Cause yeah. now I'm being told there's something wrong with me and that you're a piece of crap and get out of my house. Um, and again, I think she did the best she could in that situation. And my mom and I have a great relationship now. And with that said, I, I went to my dad's house, changed schools immediately, immediately within 24 hours. I went from one high school to the next Wow. and ended up meeting different people, doing more drugs, um, so it didn't, it didn't help. So going to a different school didn't help you. It actually hurt you. 
no, it hurt me. I went to a rural school, which again, it was, there was hardly anything to do up there except to do drugs. Wow. And then combine that with the fact that I now had more pain, more anxiety, more like what's wrong with me because of everything that all the choices that I made and then the situation in itself, I just could, could have cared less um, to stop doing what I was doing and barely ended up barely graduating high school. Not because I had bad grades. I was actually a halfway decent student. Like I had admirations as a kid to go into different careers, whether it was being an FBI agent or being an accountant. Like I had, I had these dreams, but I was so worried about fitting in and being the cool kid and being a rebel that I would skip class with my friends. We barely went to class because we would cut and get high. And that's just what we did. So take us, take us through like, what was the catalyst? What was the big event that happened? So you're on this path, you're, you're just getting, you're going from bad to worse. And now, and you, you, you're not getting the support that you need. Yeah. So right after I graduated high school, I started to sell more drugs. So I was initially selling it to support my habit. And then I was like, wow, I can actually make money doing this. So I started to pick up copious amounts of pot to sell to make some sort of a living. And then when you start to sell more drugs, you meet more people doing drugs. And then I got into things like cocaine and my addictive personality caught up with me and I started doing coke every day. And I got to the point where I was snorting like an eight ball coke a day. And the problem is coke and anxiety go about as well together. Someone trying to lose weight and eat pizza every day just doesn't work. So my anxiety is through the roof, have panic attacks, end up in the hospital because I thought I was dying. Mm -hmm. And you would think in those moments, Rosie, that I would change. I would say, you know what? Like, here you are, dude, making all these bad decisions, hanging out with these people, doing these things in the ER for having a panic attack because you're high on coke. Like, don't you think that you should change? And, And I didn't. And instead of making different decisions, I was one day I was like, what was I, 18, 19, 20 years old? It was right around like the 18, 19, 20 year old mark. I was offered a, it's like 18, 19. I was offered a five milligram Percocet from one of my friends. And the same monkey that came off my back when I started smoking pot came off my back again when I get, take, took that five milligram Percocet. And I could now get high and hang out with my friends again. My biggest concern was maintaining that sense of identity within my friend community and still being able to do and sell drugs. So what happened when I started getting panic attacks is I don't know if anybody listening to this has ever had a panic attack. The biggest fear, at least for me and other people I know of having a panic attack, isn't that of itself. It's when's the next one coming. Mm -hmm. And so my patient and the not knowing. And so my logical mind knew that, okay, every, anytime I did a drug, because now when I smoked pot, I was also getting paranoid and getting panic attacks that every time I got high, I would have a panic attack. So I would, I would be high on pot. I'd have to pull over my car. So my friends would drive. I had this little like panic attack book that I was reading, like trying to figure out how to navigate it back then. (laughs) You can imagine, right? So, so I needed to do whatever I could do to maintain that lifestyle. So that five milligram Percocet, I was able to actually get high and not have a panic attack. So again, I needed to keep chasing that same feeling and five milligrams turned into 10 milligrams, turned into 20, turned into 40, all the way up Mm -hmm. until I'm snorting, you know, hundreds of milligrams of Oxy every single day, having to do like 150, 160 milligrams just to get out of bed in the morning. And it was so bad where I was spending a couple hundred hours a day and half my left nostril was missing. 
And, and I'm around 20 years old and everything came to a head. You talked about that moment, Cinco de Mayo, 2008. I was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal and had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, had $2,000 in cash in the glove box. And, um, I see a cop running radar and it was nighttime. So I had a busted headlight that I had been meaning to fix for, for months that I didn't fix because all I cared about was who I was getting high with, what drugs was I doing? Where am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? Who, what the, all these things, like if it wasn't, didn't involve drugs, I could have cared less. So I thought it would be a bright idea to flash my high beams at the police officer to mask the fact that I had a busted headlight when in reality it gave him a reason to pull me over, pulls me over. I kind of stammer to get my, my registration and, and license out to give to him. And I just knew it was over at that point. Like my heart was in the pit of my stomach. I'm just, I, I, all these thoughts are going through my mind. As you can imagine, one thing leads to the next, he pulls me out of the car um, and ends up searching it, finds the pot, finds the cash, finds a scale um, and handcuffs. He arrests me, puts me in the back of the cop car. And um, there I am facing felony drug charges. And, and as I look back, you know, that moment I thought was my biggest setback, but it ended up becoming my, one of my, I mean, my greatest blessing. This episode is brought to you by Love Every. Watching the little ones in your life grow and learn is one of the best feelings in the world, but finding toys that help them grow and learn can be challenging. That's what led me to Love Every. Now, I don't have kids yet, but... I do have a goddaughter that is developing and growing extremely fast. Naya is so special and a little yogi in training. Love Every Play Kits are designed by expert for your child's developing brain. Each play kit is tailored to your child's exact learning stage, so they have the right toys for the right time, and new play kits delivered for every few months that grow with your child. Play kits come with unique, one-of-a-kind activities and play things that are built to endure plenty of play. And each kit comes with a play guide that's packed with expert tips, ways to play, and do-it-yourself at-home activities your kids will love. Naya's first Love Every toy was the super sustainable sink with bio-based cups and plates. She's obsessed with the running water. It's such a great way for her to enjoy playing with the sink and using the running water to tap it on and off. She is captivated by the water flow, and it's a really great way for her to learn how to help her mom around the house. Take the guesswork out of your child's play. Choose Love Every today and get free shipping when you sign up to receive your play kits at loveevery.com forward slash loved. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y dot com forward slash loved for free shipping loveevery.com forward slash loved and now back to our show this episode is brought to you by thrive cosmetics i was at the grocery store the other day and when i was checking out the lady who was checking me out asked if i had eyelash extensions and i was ah uh, so excited that she thought that i was wearing eyelash extensions when in reality, it was just the Liquid Lash Extension Mascara by Thrive Cosmetics. In case you need a refresher, this is why Thrive Cosmetics is so awesome. Thrive Cosmetics products are made with clean, high-performance, skin-loving ingredients. Their clinically proven formulas not only highlight your best features, but they actually improve your skin over time. 
All Thrive Cosmetics products are formulated without parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. As somebody who's mostly vegan, this next part is so important to me. Thrive Cosmetics never tests on animals. They're Leaping Bunny and PETA certified as 100% vegan and cruelty-free. Thrive Cosmetics has a bold mission that's truly bigger than beauty. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women thrive. That means women emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, fighting cancer, and more. Now, the Liquid Lash Extension Mascara is Thrive Cosmetics' best-selling product. I love everything about Thrive Cosmetics. Their products are the best I've ever used, and their bigger-than-beauty mission is truly inspiring. You're going to love them as much as I do. Visit thrivecosmetics.com forward slash loved to get 15% off of your first order. This is an exclusive offer that you can only get here. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com forward slash loved for 15% off of your first order. Thrivecosmetics.com forward slash loved. Don't forget to check out their Bright Balance 3-in-1 Cleanser as well as their Brilliant Eye Brightener. So good. This episode is brought to you by Osea. Summer is really the best time to get your skin looking good, to have it feel smooth and glowing, whether you're at the pool or at the beach or just hanging out at home. It's so good to have nice, dewy, glowy skin. During the summer is the only time I ever experience having super dry skin. And it's important to prepare your skin by staying hydrated and using clean products. Now is the perfect opportunity to get your skin ready with Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it every day when I get out of the shower and it just feels so good on my skin. It feels like it's absorbing really well. It doesn't feel sticky or greasy and it definitely leaves my body feeling like it's moisturized. I used cream for many, many years and I wish that I would have found this sooner. So now you too can experience great summer skin with Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. Your skin will be super soft and glowing with Andaria Algae, Acai Pulp, and Babaso Seed Oil. The result is liquid gold, a rich, luxurious, never greasy on your body, fragrant with sunny citrus and top notes of sweet passion fruit. Obviously, they have given me these incredible notes because I would not have come up with that on my own, but I'm telling you right now, it smells so good and it feels so nice on your skin. And you guys know how much I love the ocean. Osea creates skin and body care products powered by the sea. They've made clean, safe skincare products since 1996, vegan and cruelty-free. So reveal your summer glow with skincare from Osea and get 10% off of all products on your first order with the promo code LOVED at oseamalibu.com. You will also get free samples in every order and free shipping on orders over $50. That's 10% off with code LOVED at oseamalibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com. And now back to our show. I mean, you know that I resonate with this so yeah, much. Yeah, this sure. is such an intense uh, catalyst. It's such an intense experience to this can this can potentially ruin your life. And in fact, look at how many people in jails lives it has ruined. Right. Mm -hmm. So not everybody has the ability to 
turn their life around and and you have right so not to ruin the story but obviously doug is now a very successful entrepreneur in in a different type of arena um he's he's pushing health now instead of um pushing drugs which is which is a lot better you know um i'm curious with going to jail and having this transformative process and because i know you personally obviously i know like what happened while you were in jail and the introduction to you your there was somebody that was there that was very influential to right. your health journey so i'd love for you to share that story with us and really the question that i'm curious about for you is recovery is such um it can be such a behemoth of an issue to deal with for so many um you know addiction is a family disease it's not yeah. just an individual disease and so i come from a family of addicts and alcoholics and i'm very familiar with uh, the 12-step program and i work with a lot of people in recovery and so f for me i i know how big of a issue this can be and so I don't know. I, part of me wanted just to ask you questions that you've not been asked on interviews. So I'm actually curious to hear once you tell us the story of how you were able to transform, like how, how did this affect your family and how have you been able to move through it? If you have. It's hmm. a great question. So I guess to start, so when I'm sitting in this back in the back of this cop car, so if anybody's ever experienced anything like this where you, where you're ma you make a really bad decision, and you're like, how did this happen? Like, how did the kid who just wanted to be loved, how did the kid who just wanted to fit in, how did the kid who just wanted to be good at sports, how does he end up in the back of a cop car facing felony drug charges? And all the bad choices kind of came to a head. I'm like, it's all like flashing before me, like how I dealt with bullying, how I dealt with girls rejecting me. All these things are like going in front of my head. And then I'm also like, how am I going to get through this? Like, is this it? And so I end up getting arrested on Cinco de Mayo. And then September, um, after I was arrested on felony drug charges, I was, um, the felony was the possession with the intent to distribute marijuana. Again, back in 2008, I know it seems crazy now that that was a felony, but it was. Um, and thankfully it was for me because it, it, saved, it changed my life. And with that said, um, when I went to court, the judge in my mind at that time threw the book at me. He, he convicted me and found me guilty of the felony and sentenced me to five years in jail, but suspended everything but 90 days. Meaning if I had done another crime or if I had messed up on probation or failed a drug test, I could have potentially done the full five years. And he gave me five years um, probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me. He's like, Doug, you're young. You're 20 years old this felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, I'm going to cut you a break. And I'm like, break. I'm like, you just, I'm going to jail. Like, how is that a break? He's like, here's what I'm going to do. If you complete everything without messing up, I'm going to take the, um, the felony conviction off your record and give you a PBJ at the end of the five years of probation. And I was 20. I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday. I was high in court. I'd gotten high before court. I was going to get high when I left court. I was like, all right, man, whatever. Like no hopes of ever achieving that. And then a few weeks later, I reported to jail 
to do my time. And it was ironically a week after my 21st birthday. And the craziest thing is when I walked into the gates of the detention center, I cried because I didn't want to go in. And when I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. Wow. And here's what happened. So also mind you, on top of all the fear, all the worry, all the insecurities about jail in itself, like all the stuff you think about that may or may not go on in jail, trust me, was going in my head. Like I was having all these thoughts, like, oh my gosh. Everybody's like, watched all those movies. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're thinking about the worst parts of, you know, any, you know, any jail house and I was, scene. And I was like a prime candidate to get messed with based on how I felt about myself how overweight I was just, I was just the typical kid. It would have seemed like, but on top of all that, I had this horrific opiate addiction to kick. Mm. So when I walked into the, to jail, I detoxed off of the oxy for three weeks straight. And if anybody who's listening to this has ever is familiar with it or not familiar with it, it's like having the worst case of the flu for three weeks straight, uncontrollable bowel movements, vomiting, sleepless nights, anxiety, depression, pain, you name it. But the worst thing at the time was you feel like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin. And as I look back, it was like the old version of me was trying to leave my body. So the new me could become new and become whole. Right. And, and with that said, as I'm going through the initial time in my sentence, uh, my soon to be cellmate was sitting there playing Scrabble at a Scrabble table. And he looked at me, he was just like, dude, what are you doing here? And I told him a little bit about my, I told him a little bit about my story. He was like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. And he was like, dude, you're going to start working out with me um, when you get through your detox. And I was just like, yeah, right, dude. Have you seen me? Like I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. And he could just tell that I was struggling, rounded shoulders, very soft spoken, just very unconfident. He just knew that I needed something because I was like a zombie walking around in there. And then it was either, you know, like shortly after that, I see him work out and um, it was like that night and he's doing like all these push-ups, pull-ups, running like all kinds of laps in the common area of the jail. And I'm like, who is this guy? Still like one of the most fit people I've ever seen in my life. And I remember one night we were just sitting there. This is where the true transformation really started to happen. And he was just asking me like how I got to jail. And I started blaming my parents, started blaming girls. I started blaming this, that. And I'll just give the PG version. Um, but he looked at me, he's just like, quit being a wuss. He's like, quit being a victim. And I was just like, what do you mean? He was like, you're blaming everybody else for your problems, but yourself. He was like, you chose to respond to your situation and your circumstances that way. He was like, nobody forced you to use drugs. Nobody forced you to sell drugs. There's plenty of people that go through what you went through that aren't here in jail right now. And it wasn't what I necessarily wanted to hear, Rosie, but it was what I needed to hear. And the cloudiness and the fogginess in my brain had started to subside a little bit. And I was like, you know, up until this point, my life's been pretty crappy because of a lot of the choices that I've made. And he said to me, he's like, you can be a man and own your choices and know that you got yourself here and it's up to you to get yourself out. Or you can go be a wuss, cry in the corner, say, woe is me and blame people for your problems. He's like, most people will do that. And I felt empowered because this guy had no skin in the game. He was just like this cellmate. I was like, what did... You know, he had no, he wasn't my family. He wasn't a close friend or relative or whatever. And so I was like, I'm just going to give this workout thing a try. And I got out, I got down to try to do a push up and collapsed. Couldn't do a push up. Couldn't even do one for my knees. 
could barely walk up and down the steps because I was also smoking a pack, packing half a cigarettes a day. And I remember asking, I was like, why can't I do a push up? And he was just like, you're fat. And, you know, I know some people don't like that word, but for me, I hated that word. And you, sometimes you have to find something that, that drives you, something that motivates you. I never wanted to be called that word ever again. And it wasn't that I was just fat physically. I was fat emotionally. I was fat mentally. I was fat mm-hmm. spiritually. I had all this extra weight in my mind I had all this extra baggage on my heart that I needed to lose. And it started in jail. And we set a goal to, to be able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile by the time my sentence was over. And he agreed to train me in there while, um, during my sentence. And with his motivation, inspiration, staying on top of me, holding me accountable, I was able to do it. I was able to run that mile, do that set of 10 push-ups. And I felt this, this light bulb go off in my head that I was finally going to change my life. And I had this sense of discipline or I'd established a sense of discipline that I, in myself that I never had. I finally was able to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I was finally able to stand up for myself and do the thing I know I should have been doing all along, which is taking care of myself. And I started walking a different way. I started talking to myself a different way. I started to look at myself in the mirror and, and like, just be proud of, be proud of who I've become in, in that, um, during that time in jail. And I remember that the day I left, like I said, I cried. Because I just asked this guy, I said, how am I ever going to repay you? And he said, don't mess up and pay it forward. Hmm. And I didn't know what paying it forward meant. Cause back then I never read a personal development book or anything like that. I was just like, all right, dude, like I, my main focus was just not to go come back to jail and actually like stick to my word and tell him and, and, and do what I actually told him I was going to do. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from. And then I got out, um, lost a bunch of weight and then got to a place fitness wise where I wanted to help other people use fitness to change their lives. So that's where I became a personal trainer. So a lot happened between me becoming a trainer and where I am now the felony actually conviction actually did end up coming off my record because I completed all the stipulations and I've written a couple books along the way and, um, been training now, like I said, for over a decade and, been blessed to share my story on many um, incredible platforms. And, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is, is just being able to help other people. What drives me is just being able to share my story, not to, for the notoriety of it, but to help other people get inspired, to help other people get motivated to not go down the same path that I did, or if they're going down that same path to course correct, if you will. And so going back to your question about my family, it was hard. You know, I think people expect when they make a change for themselves that, you know, say they've been messing up for 10 years. And then all of a sudden when they make that change, they're like, Oh, my family needs to believe me right away. Or my Mm -hmm. family needs to be on my side like immediately. And it's like, dude, you gotta, you have to earn their trust back. And I'm all about love. I think, you know, people should love you unconditionally, but I don't think they should trust you unconditionally. I think once you've broken someone's trust for a long period of time, you have to be able to earn someone's trust back by actions. Mm. And it was tough. Like, I'm not going to say it was easy. There was times where I was at gatherings and people would ask me if I was high and I wasn't, or they would ask me like this or that. And I, you know, was very insecure and, um, would get upset. And there was obviously broken relationships. I owed my brother's 
money that I had borrowed for drugs and to pay off a drug dealer. So there was a, there was a lot of toxicity there. Hmm. And even when I was making the healthiest choices possible, um, like the relationship with my mom specifically, it was still damaged. But I knew that if if my family and I had any chance, it was going to be up to me not to fix it, to continue to change myself, to prove to them that I had changed and that I was who I said I was. And it wasn't just a flash in the pan because there's plenty of people that I don't care if it's getting off of an uh, coming out of an addiction or any other bad choice you make that can be a flash in the pan for a little while and and then make bad choice and they repeat the cycle again and then they they break the trust of their loved ones all over again. So I knew that I had to continue to work on myself and better myself to give those relationships a chance to come back together. And it took some time. It took years like mm-hmm. years. And it took a lot of tears on my, my end. It took a lot of hard conversations. It took a lot of humility and admitting where I was wrong. Was everybody willing to participate in your recovery or did, did that? I mean, my know? recovery was so unorthodox because I never went to AA or 12 step that I didn't really have a clear cut program. Like I got out of jail and and fitness became my catalyst for that. And then through that, I decided to change my friends through that. I decided to, uh, you know, obviously eat better and then focus on other endeavors, like going back to school, becoming a trainer, paying it forward, being of service to others. And it just all kind of added up and worked itself out. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think in a way they were supportive, especially my grandparents, um, because they took me in when I got out of jail because I had nowhere else really to go. And they gave me certain stipulations at their house, which was awesome. They, they gave me that, that sense of love that I needed with accountability, which I think if you can mesh those two together, it's golden. I mean, I, I lived there rent-free. They paid for my food. They gave me like spending money if I wanted to go out with, with, with my friends or do things, but I had to bring them receipts. I had to like make my bed, you know, keep, keep my, uh, my room clean, exercise, have a job, or I was out. So it gave me that, 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 that bouncing, like that, that, like almost like that safety net, if you will, mm-hmm. to know that I had this place that I could be at, but I had to do my end of it. I had to do my part too. And a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of people, yeah. they want the safety net and not do their part. And then they blame people when that safety net goes away. And it's like, I believe in having a safety net, but I also believe in doing the work and taking responsibility for yourself because no one's coming to save you. And I hate, I really hate to say that to people because we all wish we could, um, even though like the, the beauty and the transformation comes from when you're able to pull yourself out of a hole, that strength, that wisdom, um, that resilience that comes from that is something that's unmatched, but you, you really have to make the choices for yourself. And it took, like I said, years of doing that and tough conversations ended up walking my mom down the aisle when she got remarried um, a couple years ago. And my dad and I's relationship is better today. It's not the traditional father son relationship. Um, There was a lot of things that, that, you know, that happened between us and I've kind of forgiven him and just known that, you know, it's just, it's the way it is. And I've accepted that. And part of recovery, part of life, 
is accepting that, that certain family dynamics, certain family relationships aren't going to be like the Hallmark channel. They're not going to be perfect. And I think so many people, they, they use social media, they use, you know, certain movies as like a, the gold standard of what a relationship to look like. Yeah. That they lose sight of reality because it's not how it is especially when you throw addiction in the mix and you throw mental illness and you throw all these other things, trauma, abuse, yeah, it, it catastrophizes everything. Yeah, and I suffered a lot of abuse growing up too. So it's just, it's just not that simple. But what I invite people to do is to continue to work on yourself and those relationships that are meant to come back will come back. And the ones that aren't, aren't, won't. And it's a tough reality to face, but you have no other option. You can just, you can spend your life you know, trying to plead with your family to believe you can spend your life trying to fix your family, you can spend your life focusing on what other people are doing and then lose yourself in the process all over again. Like a lot of us do when we start using drugs, or you can say, you know what? I know this is really uncomfortable right now. And I know that it sucks, but what I do know is that if I have any sort of hope of having a healthy relationship with myself, a partner and my family, that it's going to require me to work on myself and spend this time to, to nurture myself and love myself and do the right things that are congruent with where I want to be in the future. And at the end of the day, like that's all you can do. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all you can do. Do you think that your parents could have helped you before you got arrested like was there anything that your parents could have said to you at that time when you were in the midst of using and selling drugs that you think could have set you on another path um it's hard to know i mean i really don't know i i was on this mission to to fit in and do what i needed to do to numb all that pain mm -hmm. i mean i remember i had a conversation with my mom this is so it was a turning point for our, our relationship in many ways. And, um, I, I, she said, I don't, I, she said like, was there anything I could have done differently? And I remember I was like, you know, I don't know if there's anything you, you really could have done differently. I said, I just wish you would have asked me why instead of the, what, like, why are you doing these drugs? Like what's going on mm -hmm. and not the what, because so many times we look at the what and we come down on the person in itself instead of like the underlying trauma the underlying pain because I, I mean i believe addiction is an internal battle that's displayed externally like i think people are just struggling like no one likes to be in the position they're in when they're in the depths of addiction right nobody does that's why when parents come to me one of the first things i say is don't shame your kid like I don't, I mean, obviously you don't want to coddle them, but shaming them and attacking them and calling them names is they already feel like crap, right? So you're going to make them feel even more like crap. If you come down on them in that way, at least in my experience and talking to people that I know. Um, so you suggest having parents like ask questions as ask opposed qu to thinking like being crippled by not knowing what to do because there is no knowing what to do. Nobody yeah. knows what to do in that situation. If there was a blueprint, then we wouldn't be where we're at right now with the addiction crisis. And there's just not. And I, you know, you, you, you alluded to something or you mentioned something where you asked me if there were certain things that I had with my parents that I thought would have saved me. And 
and you know, I, I don't know because I look back and back then, if you had said, Hey Doug, if I can wave a, wave a magic wand and grant you a few things in your life to make you happy, what would they have been back then? I would have said, I want to be ripped. I want a hot girlfriend or, and I want like to be successful or something or be in my, in whatever it looked like back then. And, you know, I've dated pretty girls. I've been successful and I'm, I think I'm in pretty good shape. And there's been points where I've still been miserable or unhappy. Not that I'm a miserable person, but I've known that like, that doesn't lift you up. It doesn't fill you up. As a matter of fact, like one of the most interesting parts of my story is how I, um, so one of the most interesting parts of my story was how I became a Christian was I got into this point in my life where I was incredibly ripped. I was like 5% body fat and like every ab muscle popping out. I was making good money as a trainer. I just written a book and I was clean obviously from drugs. And, and I thought that's what would grant me happiness forever. And it didn't because I was still so spiritually broken that I hadn't looked at a lot of the things that had led me up to that point, you know, in depth, because I still saw the old version of me in the mirror. And one of my clients, my personal training clients was a, as a pastor at a non-denominational Christian church. And he's like, you better start going to church with me. I was like, dude, I am going to hell. Like, I'm not coming to church with you. Cause what I knew growing up, like old school religious religion yeah. was if you're good. You go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And, and I also thought if God's about love, then why is all this stuff happening to me? So I didn't believe in anything, nothing. And then one of my mentors had said to me too, he was like, dude, you have everything else going for you. He's like, you're a good looking dude. You have a good group of people. Cause I obviously rebuilt some different relationships with people that were um, aligned with my future and not my past. He's like, you have a purpose. You have a great story. You're a great trainer. You have all these things, but you need some faith. You need something else. And, and around that time I was miserable inside because I had just come to this realization that being ripped and doing all the other things that I was talking about earlier wasn't making me happy all the time. And I was bouncing around from not, you know, not relationship to relationship, but just like using, like, I mean, just from girl to girl, like just doing things that just weren't working. Like I was like, why can't I do this or that, or, or this, that, or the other thing? Like I thought this is what would happen if I got these things. And I was like, you know, I think I might just give this, this Jesus thing a try. And I remember I was at a retreat um, in Florida and I had this realization that I was going to do it, got home, called my my client and i was like hey man i think i'm ready to give this jesus thing a try and you would have thought that he had just won the lottery by what i by his reaction i was like what is wrong with this guy <laughs> and i go into his office and i i pray i prayed a prayer that i acknowledge that jesus died for my sins and all that stuff and i felt that monkey come off my back that same monkey that came off my back when i was doing drugs came off my back again and i bawled my eyes out I, I don't even know how to explain this. I walked out of the church, called my mom. And for the first time, like I truly apologized to her. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I might not have been proud of who I was. I might not have been proud of my choices, but God was whatever you believe in. Like I, this is just, this is the most important part for me that God was because he was able um, to, to use them not only to help myself, but to help other people. And I realized that, part of me died in jail and I was born again as a person. 
in jail. I don't recognize the person from back then. I feel like I have somebody else's memories inside of my head. And um, it's been quite the journey. And um, I just invite people to never lose hope, never give up. Like I know right now there's a lot of people listening to this, that there's, they're in a time of darkness and they can't see in front of them. And all they see is, is fear and worry and anxiety and it's okay. But just know that if you just put one foot in front of the other and make choices that are aligned with your highest self and in your future and where you want to go one small step every single day, you'll get to the light. I promise you. There's no guarantee when or how it's going to happen, but you'll get there. You just got to keep moving forward. That's so good, Doug. What a great way. I mean, what a great way to ask you the final question because I feel like you've already answered it. But I first, I want to just take a moment to thank you for being part of the show, for being part of our community and for all the work that you do for your story, for being such an inspiring person in the world, uh, for your desire to help others, for your ability to be of service. I'm so, so grateful. And, and thank you for just sharing your story, for sharing your heart. Um, this is part of what, why I love doing what I do, because it just allows us to connect on a deeper level. And I know that everybody listening will really benefit from hearing your story. So thank you for that. Um, for the people listening or watching this, where can they go for more information or to connect with you? So if they want to find out more about me personally, they can go to dougbopes.com and it's got more about my, my journey, um, different information there. You can buy my books there and that sort of thing. The podcast is, um, the adversity advantage and it's wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it there. And then um, connect with me on Instagram. I'm more active on Instagram, I think, than any other social platform. I'm at Doug Bobst on Instagram. And yeah, just if you if you enjoy this episode, make sure to tag me and tag Rosie with a takeaway or something and what you thought of it. Yes, please do. And um, everybody that's listening, you can go to the info button or the description below if you're watching the video and get all of those links that Doug mentioned there. So we'll make it super easy. So the final question is how do you feel radically loved? How do I feel radically loved? Like how, how do I know if I'm feeling radically loved? However you want to answer the question. I mean, to me, when I think of the word radical love, it's really making sure that I'm making choices that are aligned with my truest self, that are aligned with my truest identity. I'm making choices every single day that um, are in line with who I want to become in the future. And just knowing that part of self-love in myself is, is not only um, like loving myself during the times and when it's challenging, when things are, are tough, but holding myself accountable when I don't feel like doing those tough things. It's easy to do the, thing, the things when, it's easy, when, when things are going well and you're feeling great. The challenge is when life gets hard and then those things don't become as easy to do anymore. That's absolutely right. I'm laughing. I'm like, oh my God, that's so right. <laughs> yeah. This is so this is so true. I totally agree. What a what a beautiful way to feel radically loved. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you for being part of our community. And I'm so, so grateful to have connected with you. Our mutual friend Amberly Lago was the the conduit between us yeah. so um big shout out to her i love her and um yeah thank you so much and 
everybody listening yes please share this with anybody who you think would greatly benefit from it don't forget to subscribe rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you thought about the episode thank you hey everyone i hope you enjoyed this episode i am so excited to continue to do this please share this with your friends email us message us on instagram at rosia costa or on twitter at rosia costa subscribe on itunes write a review We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.